0: Thank you, Zan. Uh, thank you so much. My name is David, and I'm an alcoholic. It's a pleasure to be back here. I came here in April of 94 for the first time. That was my third time speaking at a conference, and it was a wonderful place. It still is. Seaside is gorgeous. I want to thank uh, Zan particularly for all the extra touches she has done. Uh, she and Harlan have been wonderful, and I mean that. Uh, we have been fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you. If you ever call them again, you'll notice that on their recorder, they have a little message that says, please repeat your number twice because our recorder has a problem or something like that. And so what I've been doing for the last several months is everything I say, I've been retwe- repeating twice.
1: <laughs>
0: hello, Harlan. Hello, Harlan. This is David. This is David. We go through the whole thing. And, um, <clears throat> and so we've had this little running uh, double recording going. Of course, I blew it the first time I got to buy, and I didn't say bye bye, So we had to... Make that one up. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks to the committee and Terry over in the... Thank you so much. And Cheryl, I think, the committee and the, and the work that's been done here. In fact, Harlan came to me over two years ago. He said, David, if we can put this together, will you come and speak in Seaside again? And uh, I told him I would. And, uh, and then he wrote me a postcard and said, you're committed.
1: <laughs> I knew I was.
0: But it's a pleasure to be back. I want to talk with you today. No, by the way, we do have a. uh, This is, of course, the new millennium. This is being the new year, and and I want to uh, thank Wayne last night for starting out, leaving the 1999 in a beautiful way. What a wonderful sharing! Thank you. Good job. And I've also found that Wayne and Nora uh, shake a mean leg on the dance floor, too. I want to tell you they were out there last night. But uh, nice dancing, too. But I want to tell you that we're bringing into the new millennium, uh, and this first speaker meeting perhaps for you, it is certainly my first speaker meeting, uh, a new concept. You can see in the center of the room, the ball is still turning, right at the the top here. And I don't know what that means, except it's been burning all night long. And so I guess we'll have lights at some point. It's the new way to celebrate. Just a little sidebar humor. It's early, I know. (laughs) I want to talk to you about a disease I have, and I want to talk to you about it in a very real way is as, is as, uh, as said I, I I looked like maybe I lost a car. I did find it, but uh, that was at a holiday inn one night, but um, took a little while the next day, but I did find it. But the truth is, I really don't know uh, how to describe this disease or disease I have except to tell you that it affected every fiber of my body. One of the things that this disease or disease I have does to me is it allows me to perceive be perceived by most people as being okay you know why i tell them that
1: <laughs> how you doing I'm, I'm
0: fine i'm fine in north carolina somebody asked me about north carolina i think it was joe and uh i was showing him some dialects so he could impress one of his uh, friends but uh <sighs> yeah he got it he got it y'all can see joe after the meeting he'll give you his dialect but, but the point I'm making is that I was in North Carolina when we were born. In fact, it's just a moment or two before birth. You have to start smiling, and you have to mumble these words, I'm fine, how are you? I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. You have to shake your head like this just a little bit, Michael. Not much, but just a little bit. You know, not, I'm not even Japanese, but you know, just, I'm fine, how are you? I'm fine, I'm fine. And you go through life, it's called fining. We, per- we, we perfect fining to a fine art. How are you doing this morning? I'm fine, how are you doing? I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. I'm fine, thank you so much, I'm fine. <laughs> Oh, I'm fine. Oh, I'm fine.
1: Need anything? Oh,
0: no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I don't need anything. What do you want for Christmas? Oh, you'll comb or something. So I got getting combs. I just finally figured that out this Christmas. I'm fine. You see, my disease says to me that if I'm not fine, you will not like me. If I'm not fine, see, my worst fear... My worst fear is you're going to find out that I'm afraid. See, if you think I'm afraid, if you know me as afraid, then you will not want me to be around you. And so my, 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 my my whole drive in life, my whole, this whole disease for me is that feeling of having to be okay and inside I'm absolutely collapsing. Having to be okay and inside it's like there's this, there's this explosion inside of my gut and it's like chronically there every day. Having to be okay and say the right words and not knowing what the right words are. Having to be okay and dress the right way or maybe not dress the right way or lose weight, gain weight, depending on my age. And never having it right. That's my disease. You see, there's a a section here in the big book that to me absolutely summarizes. And in fact, Wayne mentioned it last night, um, but it's on page 62. This disease, this disease, I have come to know as alcoholism, says this. It says this on page 62. Selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of all of our troubles. Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity, I stepped on the toes of my fellows and they retaliated, seemingly without provocation. But we invariably find that at some time in my past, I have made decisions based on self, which have come back later to hurt me. That is a summary of my life, including the lost car I had. I could stop right there. Hundreds of forms of fear. Hundreds. Do you know what it's like? (laughs) It's like, am I the only one? (laughs) That feeling of, am I okay? Am I okay? The first thing I remember, I was, I don't know, five or six, my mother asked uh, me to, to, well, we were going to a relative's house. I don't know if it was an aunt or uncle, but we went. And I was in the back seat, and my mother pointed, and she said, don't you ask for one thing when we get there. My brother Larry and I, he was 16 months, two days older at that time. He still is. Nothing's changed at that point. But he pointed. she pointed, she said, now. Don't you ask for one thing, not not even a drop of water, because I don't want uh, Aunt Sue to uh, to say, Letha and Claudia, my mom and my dad, are welcome back here, but those mean young'uns had better never do this again and never come again. And so I sat there. I don't know if you ever did this. The next memory, I was on a wooden bench at the back door, and I had I was sitting on my, my hands. Have you ever done that? Stuck them under my thighs so I wouldn't touch anything, so I don't want to get in trouble. And I remember people walking by, and I'd go, I'm fine. How are you? You want something to drink? Oh, no, I'm fine. Thank you. I'm fine. I'm fine. I had to go to the bathroom so bad, and I would not. Do you know when I learned it was okay from my counselor in treatment at the age of 40? She said I could even leave the group and go if I didn't have to go. I said, but what do I do when I'm in there? This is a true story. And she said, just go in and kind of look at yourself and wash your hands and come back. So I tested her. <laughs> and it worked. See, I always it wasn't so much going to the bathroom, it was coming back. I just knew, they all knew where I'd been. It was that fear, that fear. So I got in the car, the first thing in the car, and I said, Mom, how did I do? How did I do? Do they want me to come back? And I don't know if you know that fear, that base fear of never, ever being accepted back and you've got to do more than you are, you've got to say more than you are, you've got to be more than you are, or you're not, because you're not enough. I just didn't have a plan. I didn't know what I was supposed to be. Hundreds of forms of fear. Hundreds of forms, in every way possible. Hundreds of, hundreds of forms of self-delusion. And some people asked me last night, would I share this, because it's something I haven't shared, I don't share every time now, but I think it's very important that I don't forget it. In 1989, I met a guy named Joe, and I want to give Joe credit. They say after three times, uh, it's yours, but I'm going to give Joe credit because Joe changed my life. He said at a meeting in downtown uh, 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 Dallas, Texas, he said, to, to said in this meeting that alcoholism is a disease characterized by pyramiding thoughts. That's pretty highfalutin. I went, yeah, and I didn't understand it, so I went to Joe. I said, Joe, what do you mean? And he said it's like this. It's an upside-down pyramid. It comes right out of the center of this head of mine. It has all my life, and it works like this. I can be sitting in my office at 9 o'clock in the morning. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm fine. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thank you very much. I'm fine. People, my boss walks by about 9.30. I'll go, good morning, Don. He doesn't speak. For whatever reason, he doesn't speak. And here it goes. starts right here. So a thought process comes right out of the center of this wonderfully active brain I have. I wonder why I didn't speak, first thought. Second thought, he he's probably upset with me. Third thought. I bet it was that report I gave him this afternoon, Joe. He didn't like that report yesterday. Fourth thought. We got a meeting at one o'clock. I bet he's going to fire me. Some of you've been there. <laughs> Man, at nine o'clock, I'm fine. How you doing? Good morning, I'm fine. Nine one, I'm fired. I hadn't left my desk. I haven't left my office. Nobody's come in and no phone calls have come in. But I'm fired. And then I take that pyramid, that's enough, but I'll start and build another pyramid on top of that pyramid. And I'll think, well, if he's fired me, say that's a given now. I don't have to negotiate that anymore. It's a given. Well, he's fired me. Okay, so, then I have to go down to Ray Avenue to the unemployment office and apply for unemployment. (laughs) Well, what if they won't give me an unemployment check? (laughs) Then I started other people. Well, I'll go by the Marina Dale bread store and buy bread for my family. Nine o'clock, I'm fine. How are you? Good morning. Fine. 901, I'm fired. 901 and a half. i I'm buying day-old bread. I have not left my office. Now, understand the interesting part about this. If anybody walks in during the course of that thought process, guess what I will say when they say, How are you doing this morning? I'm fine. How are you doing? That's some fine thinking is what that is. Some fine thinking. I had it honed. You know, it's like this. You wake up on Tuesday morning... Feeling pretty good, got to go to work, and you scratch a pimple. It's right here on your calf. For those on this side of the table, I'll do it on this side. It's on your calf right here. And you get in the shower. You scratch it a couple more times. You sit down, you're putting on your socks, getting ready to go to work. It's 7.15 in the morning. And you look down, you see this pimple now. It's got a little red circle around it. Here it goes. wonder what that is. It look, It looks infected. You start rubbing a little bit. Oh, oh my gosh, it's got a knot in it. Must be a tumor. Well, if it's a tumor, they're going to cut my leg off right there. For this side of the table, they're going to cut it off right there. Well, no, they'll probably cut it off right here, if knowing me, they'll cut it off above the knee. I'll have to go get a prosthesis. I have not gotten out of my house yet to go to work, and I'm worried about a prosthesis. Do you know what I'm talking about? See, I thought I only did it with bad things. I do it with good things too. I—I uh, I was in a, this was about nine years ago, Zan. I—I was in the shower one morning, humming a country and western tune. I don't know why, because my life was going along pretty well at that time. But I
1: was—but <laughs> I was
0: humming this country and western tune, and uh, I got out, dried off, some underwear on, I was shaving, and the next conscious thought I had was. Where am I going to get a tour
1: bus?
0: (laughs) For those of you who have not been to instant stardom (laughs) let me take you there in my thought process. Here it goes. I'm humming this country and western tune. Hmm, this sounds pretty good. I bet I could sing Country Western music if I tried. If I I practice a little bit, Michael, we got a band around town here, a couple of gigs, we go out to Nashville. And in Nashville, we'd get a couple of contracts and, and get a bigger band and uh, get a contract to go on tour. And I'll need a tour bus. I mean, it's out there. March twenty second, 1966. I was 19 years old. Now, let me share this with you. I went to the Raskeller bar because my girlfriend had broken up with me. Ooh. And I bought two tall Paps Blue Ribbons and drank them one at a time. And guess what happened? Please hear this. For the first time in my life, that thinking stopped. And I was fine, Really? You know what I'm saying? I was there, I was present. I was fine. I was OK. it was all right. Whatever was going on, it didn't matter about the exam on Friday. It didn't matter about that. You know, you know how many times I took exams in high school and college? About four or five. You know I take them on Thursday, take them on Friday, take them on Saturday Sunday, but you know, And then I would finally take it. I was so exhausted when I finally took it, it didn't do well. You know what I'm saying?' The thinking. It went away. I mean, I looked out and I saw all these women that needed dancing with. And I went out and asked them to dance. I was singing, my feet were moving. I mean, I didn't have pimples. I wasn't skinny, 120 pounds, six foot two. I was absolutely muscular, and I felt absolutely good. In fact, I saw so many people that needed things I needed to share with them. Just they were really, they were really asking things, You know, tell us about the world, David. How is it going? And, and I stayed there as long as I could until they had that last call. I never experienced that before, and they, they said, you'll have to come back later. And so I just I said, I've got to go now, but I'll be back Thursday night. That's the way it started. You see, I drank for 22 years, but please hear this part. you know what I did every time I drank? And Dr. Silkworth says this. I was reading it this morning. He says it in a beautiful way. We drink for the effects produced by alcohol. This cessation is so elusive that we desire to drink again to get that feeling that feeling. And I drank for 22 years every time, just trying to get back to Greenville, North Carolina, March 22nd, 1966. And guess what started happening to me? I could do it at first. Hey, and then I'd see Greenville coming. Vroom, it'd go right by me and I was roaring drunk. I mean, what happened? I just wanted to get to Greenville. I couldn't figure it out. I want to tell you about my last year of, of, of uh, out there. It was uh, basically 13 years ago, starting today, 1987. I want to tell you about my wonderful year of 1987, because I did lose more than my, my car. you know what I lost? I lost myself. I lost my dignity. I lost my every, uh, every value, every principle, everything that I felt was neat and needed in life, I lost it one year at a time for 22 years. And the last year of my drinking, at this date in 1987 I was in the hospital now let me tell you about why I was in the hospital see I had this thinking process that told me that since my father died of cancer in 85 of the liver that I had it too please hear that and it was so real that the pain was so real I went into the hospital between Christmas and New Year's Called my doctor and said I've got I've got a real bad problem I didn't tell him how much I was drinking and he said, come on in. And so they ran tests for 10 days. I was in the hospital at High Smith Rainey, the old hospital, and I was doing tests today and tomorrow. And after 10 days, they came and said, we can't find anything wrong with you. And I said, but you don't understand. There's something wrong with me. I mean, this is unbelievable pain, and I've got to get some help. So they sent me to Duke University Medical Center, which is about an hour and a half away. And they kept me there for 12 days all the way in, or actually into the early part of February. And uh, I basically was there for more tests. And in fact, I'll tell you how real this disease is, this this disease is. One of the days at Duke was the national convention. I was CEO of a multinational company. And we had our international convention in Florida. And guess what we did since I could not be there to give the opening address? We hooked up a phone line and put a speakerphone tied to the speaker system in this convention hall with about 700 people. And from my bedside on my deathbed, I addressed them for the last time. I'm so sorry I can't be with you, but I'm fighting cancer here. (laughs)
1: It's
0: true. Do you know why I was in that hospital? Please hear this. Do you know why, looking back now, I did not want to go to that convention? Do you know why? Because I had to speak and be there and be... Okay, and fine, and how are you? I'm fine. I had to answer, have answers to questions, and I had run out of answers to questions. I had, I had no, I had no energy left to be fine because I knew inside I was dying. I didn't understand it, and the only thing I wanted to do was to kill myself, but I couldn't tell you that because I wouldn't be fine and you would think I was coward. Sure. Does that sew it up pretty well? And so rather than go to a convention in Florida or to say to people, I can't do that, I found myself going into the hospital. Please hear this. For me, for 40 years of life, do you know what I did when I could not face reality any further? I got sick. I got flus, viruses. I had lower back, upper back pain. Headaches, nausea, bad leg. Broke a foot one time playing tennis. That, That lasted about a year. That worked well. Can't go tonight and my foot's bothering me, I can't. I, I mean, I dropped out of social stuff, I dropped out of business stuff, I dropped out, I could not be, when I could not face this, this reality of life because I was so frightened and so full of self-delusion with this thinking, so full of it that I could not, I would get sick. And that was my perfect permission to not function that day. You see, I realize today that in my recovery that that's a form of being a victim. And I have to look at that very carefully because what I'm not willing to do is show up and I'm trying to blame it on something else, not me, and my ability or inability to do it. I would suggest to you that that 1987 year was interesting in many respects because every Saturday, uh, a day like today, guess what I started doing about 9.30, getting drunk, and I started thinking about drowning myself in the lake I lived on with a boat that I had, and I was going to tie two... 55 pounds in the box together and put them on my left ankle, tie the rope around and throw them in and I was going to get dragged down and I was just going to, it was going to be over. See, it wasn't bad. It was basically very good. It was that it was going to end finally. Hundreds of forms of fear. Hundreds of forms of self-delusion. Hundreds of forms of self-seeking and to me that's the ultimate form of self-seeking is that I would dare look at that as a permanent solution to a temporary problem. But see, to me, it was a very permanent problem. I couldn't figure my way out. The only way I felt safe any longer was in my bathroom, five feet by six feet. i got to tell you about my bathroom. It had a toilet. It had a, a, a tub. It had a magazine rack. It had an exhaust fan. It had a door with louvers and a lock. And I could go in there and be by myself. Do you know what that feels like? I mean, just, whew, I could stop. I could let down. I could take my beer and put them in my coat pockets like this, and I'd walk back down to the, to the bathroom so nobody would see that I had beer. I'd hide them in the, the refrigerator. See, nobody knew I was drinking, Wayne, nobody at all. I mean, I was, I was hiding them under the vegetable tray in the, in the refrigerator, You know, celery, carrots, lettuce, and, 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 so, and I'd just put them down in the back, and they'd cover the stuff up, and nobody knew it was there. I'd sneak in, and I'm out of here. I knew that my family, honestly, my children must have thought I had the worst case of dysentery of any human being that ever lived. See, I'd go to the bathroom, I'd turn on the exhaust fan, I'd pop two tops, I would basically drink my beer, read a magazine, and I'd hide my cigarettes, because I was a closet smoker for the last five years. Nobody knew I was smoking, right? And I had them under the magazine, right? And I'd I'd light up a cigarette, drink me a beer, and look at a magazine and read it, sitting there on my toilet. How much better could you want it? I mean, I ask you, how much better could you want it? What a life. What a life. I would get my family mad with me so they'd leave. And guess what I would do in 1987? If they left and the phone rang, I wouldn't answer it. So guess what my family had to do with me? They had to work out a calling code. And basically, if they were out and needed to reach me and I was by myself, they would call six, let it ring six times, hang up, and on the second ring, I'd always call them. I mean, I'd answer it. I only blew it one time because the second ring was somebody else. If somebody came to my door, please hear this. I would crawl on my belly out of my chair in the den down the hallway and close the door and hide because I was scared that you were going to find out that I was drunk. Other than that, it was a great year, 1987. hundreds of forms of fear, hundreds of forms of self-delusion, hundreds of forms of self-seeking. I want to tell you a story. I uh, I was two years sober, and I had left the office, was leaving the office, and and my boss came by. See, I, I was there for 21 years at that time, and you know what I knew every day? That my boss was going to come in and say, Okay, we figured it out. You don't know what you're doing. You've only been doing it 21 years, but you don't know and that afternoon he came by and he said, I don't like this and don't like that. And, and you know, you need to do this over. And I, by this time, I mean, absolutely, I was just crazy. And so I went home. It was about 9.30 at night. I called my sponsor, Keith L. He said to please tell hello. And some of you, I, I know, Jim, you have uh, sent some greetings back to Keith. But basically, he's, uh, I said, Keith, you know what my boss said to me today? He said, what? I said, he said, let And he gets real quiet when I get angry like that. He said, well, what time is it, David? And I said, it's 9.30. He said, is that a.m. or p.m.? I said, it's nighttime, Keith. It's p.m. He said, "Uh, what time did your weekend start? The only weekend you're going to get this week to celebrate your work. What time did it start? I said, 5 o'clock. He said, so it's 9.30. I said, right. Then he said, look down at the floor and tell me where you're standing. I'm standing on brown carpet in my den. He said, good, you're in your den. I said, right, right. He said, David, when are you going to let this go? When are you going to choose to let this go? When are you going to choose to let this thing with your boss go? He said, now, if you want to, you just choose this. He said, you can choose this, Wendy. You can choose to hold on to it till tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock and mess up your... He didn't say that. Mess up your whole Friday night. He said, now, if you really want to go for a good one this weekend, why don't you hold on to it to 6 o'clock Saturday afternoon, and you'll mess up your whole Saturday. I, you know, you can choose to do that, too. He said, of course, now, if you really, really want to uh, have a good time with your family and your work time off this weekend, just hold on to it to Sunday morning, 10 o'clock. That's nice. You'll mess up your whole Friday, Saturday, Saturday night, and Sunday morning. He said, now, of course, David, you have options. And if you choose this weekend to hold on this till nine, Monday morning at 9 o'clock, you can mess up your whole weekend. He said a little bit different. <laughs> he said it's your choice. Please hear this part. I said, I don't have a choice. He said, Yes, you do. And then he said this, What do you get out of being a victim, David? You know what I said? I don't get anything, Keith. (laughs) He said, You must because you keep doing it to yourself. And he slammed the phone down. I called him back. I called him back and and I said, what do you mean by that? You know what he told me to do? He told me to go for treatment. I was two years sober. He said, you need treatment. I went for codependency treatment for 24 weeks. He said, you don't know how to let people, let them live. You don't know how to draw boundaries. You don't know how to say no. You don't have any of those skills, David. And you've got to get some help. And I did. Now, the interesting thing about it is this. I did not understand that I have choices. I did not understand that. You see, for me, when I was working on my fourth step, Keith asked me to do something very unusual. It's not unusual. I thought it was unusual. I was trying to write my fourth step. In fact, I was writing it so well that I was looking forward to having some type of publishing rights. Uh, We could go with it afterwards. Uh, I wanted to make sure that we had it, you know, right. Right pen, right notebook. I was really working on the rightness of it. I'd ordered everything from... uh, from out there in Minnesota, and I got all those books in. I had everything going. And he gave me a legal pad, a yellow legal pad. He gave me two number two sharpened pencils. He told me it would be more interesting if they were sharpened. And he also told me to write with pencil because I wouldn't have to lie, because you can erase your answer. With ink, you have to lie, because you don't want to erase it. I said, okay. And then he put on the top of the front, the first sheet of the first pad, the pad, he put fears. And he skipped a couple of pages and put resentments. And he skipped about three, four four pages. And he put sex and left the rest of the pad. (laughs) I don't know if that was any indication, but uh, here's what he told me to do. He said, for you to sit down at night, David, and say this prayer. And I had to write the prayers down. And the first prayer, I had to commit to do this 15 minutes every night. You see, I think I know when I am work the third step. When I've worked the third step, third step, I've made a decision to begin the process of turning my will and my life over. And to me, the very, the very manifestation of that decision is I sit down with a legal pad and two number two shopping pencils and for 15 minutes every night. And when I do that, I've made the decision. And until I take that action, I have done nothing but think about it. Okay? And he said to pray this prayer, God, please show me in your time and in your way my fears. Amen. And I was supposed to say that prayer, get quiet, hold my pencil in my lap, and basically write down any word that came to me. I was not to write a sentence or a paragraph. I was to write words or phrases because he did not want me to write a book. And my goal was to write a book in this inventory. And he knew that. And then after I finished my fears, after I had worked with that till I felt like my fears were there, guess what I was to do? Sit down with my resentment page and God, please show me whom I'm resentful at, what happened, and what my part in the resentment is. Now, I did not like that last phrase in the prayer. Because it was like the big book I had to work on. You know, basically, my mom, who, what, who it was, what happened. She kicked me. Uh, a third, what it affected me, my physical security, my self-esteem, my fear. And then on page 67 of the big book is the kicker. What was your part? <laughs> oh. You see, resentments for me were justified. you know why? Because I was a kid. Or I was an adult. They did it to me. (laughs) I mean, what's the problem? They did it. I'm doing it. (laughs) You know what? They did it. I'm doing it. You see, I came here in 1987. Please hear this. When I was sick, when I could not function, do you know what I did all day, most days? I thought of how I was going to get even. Please hear that part. It took and consumed so much energy from me that I could not live. It says in in, in the big book on page 63, 64, that it says, you know, uh, the resentments robbed us from the sunlight of the Spirit. It squandered the very moments of life. And it did for me. It squandered. You see, the interesting thing about it, Jim, I thought I was getting them. You know what I'm saying? I was like, I'm going to get her. I got to treatment, and uh, my mother and I had had a, a very embattled... Childhood. It was not a pretty sight in many days. Wonderful lady, loved me. I just didn't, we didn't see how to eye on a lot of things. And uh, I got the treatment, and, my, and my, uh, my counselor, Claire, she said to me, she said, Why are you so angry? And I smiled as pretty as I could. I said, Me? Angry? I'm not angry. And she said, Yes, you are. You know how they kind of, in the jump, the group jumped in, you know how they do? Yeah, they got nosies what they did, Bob. Yeah, you're angry, yeah, you're angry. Okay, so I'm angry. She said, who are you angry with? I said, my mother. (laughs) You see, I told a lot of people about my mother, but I only told one event at a time. I never told any one person all the events. Because if you say anything bad about my mother, guess what I did? What are you talking about? My mother. She's a fine lady. (laughs) How's your relationship with your mother? Oh, it's fine. It's fine. Just never went to see her for 20 years. Truly, saw her Christmas afternoon, Thanksgiving. Didn't call her. Didn't write her. truly. That's, that's the relationship we had, but it was fine. I thought of every day, most days, some unpleasant thoughts. And she said, who are you angry with? And I said, my mother. And I told her what happened when I was 13, and I told her all this stuff, and I agree with Wayne. is not the reason I'm an alcoholic, okay? But the resentments I carried with me caused unbelievable pain within me and thinking and within me, which I then took alcohol to numb those pains. And what I have to do is look at the pain. You see, what I had to look at was the fact that, and Claire said to me, she said, What happened? And I told her what happened. I was 13, 15, 17, 19, all this stuff. And she looked at me, and she asked this dumb question. She said, David, where is your mother right now? I said, She's in Raleigh, North Carolina, Rock Garner. And I was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. She said, How far is that? I said, Oh, 1,200 miles, 1,000 miles, something like that. She said, What do you think your mother's doing right now? And I said, Well, she's retired. She's 69 years old. She said, What do you think your mother had for dinner last night, David? And I'm thinking, I have no clue. I'm here in a detox center, my third day in. This was fun. I said, I don't know what you had for dinner last night. And she said, What would you have wanted if you had been there? And I said, Well, if I'd been there, I wanted uh, fried chicken, potato salad, green beans, uh, lemon rain pie, a little iced tea, and a roll. That's a good southern meal, by the way. And she said, David, what did you have here in detox last night for dinner? And I said, I wasn't too hungry. You know, Claire, I was a little upset. I'm going to go through some changes here, a little frightened. And, you know, I wasn't too hungry. I had a little roll, a little tea. You know, I wasn't too hungry. She said, how much sleep, David, do you think your mother got last night? I said, I don't know. I wasn't there. She said, well, take a guess. How much sleep, uh, sleep do you think she got? I said, oh, probably six, eight hours. She said, David, how much sleep did you get here in detox last night? I said, well, Claire, I was thinking about a few things, and you know, I was trying to change my life here a little little change and I I wanted to smoke and I had to go to the day room to smoke so maybe an hour and a half nurse already told her all this and she said David what do you think your mother had for breakfast this morning I said I wasn't there Claire she said what would you want I said okay um eggs over easy grits sausage uh toast strawberry jam orange juice a little coffee she said David what did you have here in detox for breakfast this morning and I said, well, Claire, I was dealing with a few things. I smoked a little bit too much last night, and I was a little congested this morning, a little nausea on my stomach, you know, and, and I, I just had a little toast and a little coffee. She said, David, where is she, what do you think your mother's doing right this red-hot second? I said, well, she's retired. She's probably talking to a friend on the phone, visiting with a friend, watching a soap opera or something like that. And she said, oh, okay. She said, David, what are you doing right now? For the first time in my life, please hear this, at 40 years old, I stopped. Do you know what I mean by I stopped? I never stopped thinking about that. I never was never going to let it go. I was going to prove. I was going to show my mother. Do you know what I was going to show her? I was going to show her that I did not need her. And it almost killed me. You see, my and again, Claire says she kind of rubbed the salt into the wound. She said, well, it seems like your mother's doing pretty well. And it seems like to me you're killing yourself. I don't know if you can grasp that. I had never stopped enough to see what it was doing to me. I was killing myself. And she said, you've got a choice. (laughs) Back to these choices again. She said, you can choose to let this go. I said, let this go? I'm show sure. (laughs) She said, David, you're killing yourself. And she said, I would encourage you to let it go. I said, how do I let it go? And she said something very crazy. She said, first, you have to admit you're powerless over alcohol. That's an interesting way to let a resentment go. That your life has become very manageable. Secondly, that you're powerless over your mother. And that your life regarding that relationship is very unmanageable. And thirdly, that you're powerless over what happened or didn't happen to you in your life. That your life about those things that happened or didn't happen had become very manageable. And she said, and thirdly, you must pray for your mother every day what you want for yourself. I could go for the one or two of them, but that was a tough one. You see, I did, I had, I'd, I'd pray for my but it was not that kind of prayer. See, I thought my mother was a mean woman. I didn't realize my mom was sick too. And so what I had to agree to do to stay, because she told me this, and I think she meant it. She said, if you don't agree to pray, you can't stay here. Because no human being in this world can help you and your condition, your spiritual condition, unless you agree to let go and say you're powerless. So I told her I would. And I went to the shower the next morning, turned on the shower, turned on and flushed the toilet so it would have all kinds of noise. I got in the shower and said that little prayer. And I said, what what do I pray? And she said, pray for you, what, for her what you want for yourself. She said, what do you want? I said, I want to be happy, sober, and free. She said, pray that for your mother. I said, but my mother doesn't drink. She said, that's okay. Pray for her to be sober anyway. And so I did. And I got to a group and nothing really happened except the group said, did you pray for your mother? You know how to get nosy. And I said, because they were doing it too. And uh, some dads and some moms. And she said, I said, yes, I did. And you know what she did? She said, okay, then will you agree to pray every day for the next two weeks? And you know what happened? I was there in, in, uh, in inpatient treatment, residential treatment for a month, and then two months in a halfway house, and guess what? I was there two weeks at a time. Did you pray for her for two weeks? Will you pray for her for the next? Did you pray for her for the last two? Can you pray for her for the next? The last thing Claire said to me when I left, she said, David, please pray for your mother. It will free you I want to go back to that uh, that and not leave that story there. When I got to the fourth step, I had to list my mom. She kicked me when I was thirteen, and uh I was frightened, my self esteem, physical injury. And uh he said, What's your part? Were well, you selfish, dishonest, or frightened? I think it says on sixty seven. And I said, uh, all three, I guess. You see I didn't mind my mom that that was a little little sleight of hand I forgot about. She told me not to ride the bike, and I pretended I didn't hear her, and I I did. And so what, what he said is, what is your part? Now, here's the important thing. You see, I took the act as a justification for the resentment, which was 25 years, 30 years. And what he said is, what was the act, and what is your part in the resentment, David? The big book is not asking you to say your part in the act as much as what is your part in the resentment. It's very important. See, as a child, I think child, anybody physically sexually abused their children. I mean, not much fault there. We're children. They're adults. But what my problem was, what my malady was, what my issue was, was that I took that act as a springboard justification to then resent that person for 25 years. You see, my part was in the resentment, not the act. The act ended at some point in time. I picked it up and ran with it for 30 years. And because I did, and in fact, he said to me, I said, Keith, I don't think I have any part in this resentment, any part in this resentment with my mother. And you know what he said? If you don't, you're in real trouble. He said it another way. You're in real trouble. Because if you have no part in the resentment, David, you will live with it till the day you die. And that put responsibility back on me, didn't it? You see, as a victim, do you know what I get from being a victim? And he asked me that. He said, what do you get out of being a victim? You know what we did the next week after that night with the boss story? I had to sit down and inventory my victimhood. That was a fun uh, experience. What is it like for me to be a victim? And he kept saying, what are you getting out of this? What do you get from this? What do you get out of being a victim? And you know what I get? I get a sense of power. I get a sense of power. Because, you know, I would go into the bar at O'Brien's over on on Rayford Road, and I'd say, give me another one. And finally, he'd say, David, I think you've had too much. And I'd say something like this. Well, if you were raised by the woman I was raised by and beat like I was beat, you drink too. Oh, I'm sorry, David. Here's another drink. You see, my victimhood justified unjustifiable behavior for me. My victimhood explained and excused unexcusable and unexplainable behavior. That's what I got. I had a permanent excuse. Sorry about that. My life is really messed up. You just have to understand. Can't be responsible. Can't be happy today. Got to drop out a little bit. Okay, so I'm drunk. What's the problem? That's how my life was when I got to, uh, he said, what is your part? And my part in the resentment was that I would not forgive her. That's My part was that I was selfish. I was going to show her I would not forgive her. It was an incident that happened. I had let it go. Now, when I was two years sober, uh, he asked me, actually a year and a half, he said, I want you to, we started working on my eight-step list, and he said, now, you're working on your eight-step list. I want you to start acting differently so people will treat you differently, David. I said, what does that mean? He said, you've got to start acting like an adult so people won't treat you like a child. I did not like that. I was 42. He said, but you're acting like a child with your victimhood. And you're sulking, and everything's emotional. He said, you've got to start acting differently. I said, how do I do that? He said, write your mother. <laughs> I said, what do I write her? <laughs> hey, I don't have anything to say. He said, go buy her a funny card at Eckers Drugstore, a little smiley face, and put, dear mom, thinking of you, David, and mail it to her. She only lives 65 miles away. I said, but I don't don't really want to do that, Keith. He said, well, then hold on to your victimhood. (laughs) That's fine with me. I said, okay, I'll go get the card. And I mailed it. Three weeks later, he said, did you get a response? I said, no. He said, mail her another one. I said, what do I say in this one? He said, write the same thing. Dear Mom, thinking of you, David. So I mailed that one. Guess what happened? It was a year and a half sobriety. My mother mailed me a letter back. She put a little cartoon of Donald Duck in it, and she said, well, thank you so much for letting, letting me know that you're thinking about me every day. I didn't say that. <laughs> you know, when Keith told me to, to write, Dear Mom, uh, uh, thinking about you, David. I said, But, Keith, I'm having bad thoughts. Importantly, he said, That's okay, David. She does not know you're fighting her. It's in your head. See, I knew she knew. See, if you're fighting somebody and they're not, they don't know you're fighting them, how can there be a fight? How can I show you and prove to you if there's not a fight? So guess what I did? I wrote her back. Thank her for the Donald Duck cartoon. Thank you so much. Guess what she did? She wrote me back. Guess what I did? I wrote her back. It's funny how things work that way. So I called her. I said, Mom, why don't you come down and visit us? My sister lives in Raleigh, so she brought her down to visit with my brother Larry and I. Now, please hear this. My mother was 71 years old. She walked into the room. She came in and sat right here where you are, uh, uh, Marilyn, and sat just that close, and she said... To Larry and I. she looked at us, she didn't say, hello, she said these words. She said, when I was six years old, I sat in my grandmother's lap, Grandmother Honeycutt, and she rubbed her fingers through my hair and said, what a beautiful little girl I was and what a nice person I was. And everything within me wanted to say, Mother, I've heard that dumb story 300 times in my life. We're here to visit. But I didn't. And what I did is I stopped again, and guess what I saw in this woman? She was scared to death to talk to her children. And I can identify with that. I didn't know, she didn't know what to say to us. So she sat there and told this story, this old familiar story, how she felt comfortable and loved at some point in her life. You see, what I saw in her that day, which is the whole miracle of this program and working these steps, is by praying for her, I really believe I could stop and see in her that I saw me in her. I saw my fear in her. I never. I thought she was mean. I didn't know that she was frightened. We continued to write and call. When I was four years sober, I uh, invited my mother to go on a trip. We'd never been together on a weekend, just the two of us. while we always had family, we drove to Washington. That's where she wanted to go. <coughs> Excuse me, to see the cherry blossoms. Uh, my father had taken her before her death, his death, and so. We went, and along Interstate 95, Guess what she said to me. She looked at me and she said, David, when I was 10 years old, I burned two biscuits in a wood-burning stove one day, and and my father, your grandfather, took a tobacco stick and and beat me with it. And she said, I was scared to death every day the rest of my life around him because I knew I couldn't please him. She said, have you ever felt that way? I said, Mom, when I was 13 and I broke those eggs, I want to tell you that I'm very sorry because I did not mind you. You told me not to ride the bike, and I heard you. I told you I didn't, and I lied about it. Please forgive me. And she said, Please don't mention that. She said, It's been 37 years, David, and there has not been a day in my life in 37 years that I have not thought of that incident with tremendous pain and tremendous regret and tremendous shame. And she looked at me and she said, can you ever forgive me? It was enough. Do you know what I mean by enough? It was enough. Enough time. Enough showing. It was just enough. Since that time, uh, I've had the privilege of walking through my mom's open heart surgery with her and washing her back and feet. Giving her permission to stop breathing if that's what she needed to do. I've been with her for a hip break and uh, a new boyfriend in fact, i got to tell you that story <clears throat> i uh we were with her last week at christmas day and and uh my mom's now she's seventy eight and <clears throat> is uh is a neat lady what a sweet lady anyway she in fact he told me if I keep praying for her every day, which i do uh, that uh that the things that bothered me the most would become cute, and they have. They would become cute, and they have. And so, uh, and so what I did is, is basically I went to see my mom one night. It was called, I call it Letha's Hotel because I worked in Raleigh at the time, and I'd go up and stay with her, and she loved it, and I loved it. And I would talk with her, and she, she was sitting there, and I said, Mom, she goes to Garner Senior Citizen Club. Good lunch, 75 cents, 325 friends. She likes me to go there so she can introduce me. This is my son, David. How are you doing? You Remember Mrs. Penny? No, I don't remember. Oh, this is Mrs. Penny. And I go around the whole room. Wonderful time. And so I was sitting with her. I said, have you been to the Senior Citizens Club this week? Are you making any new friends? And she blushed. This was a couple, this was a couple of years ago. A couple of years. I was 76. And she blushed. And I said, Mom. And she, she started to grin, this little grin like this little teenager. And she turned her head and kind of buried her head. She said, yes, I have. And I said, what's his name? <laughs> and, and she said, Lawrence. I said, well, tell me about Lawrence. Well, she told me about his open heart surgery scar. She told me about his teeth. She t- the only thing she didn't talk about was the hoof. You know, it's like what is? I said, Mom. I said, Well, this is great. I said, Well, tell me more about Lawrence. And so we went to bed, and, and she said, Are you are you upset with me? Please hear this. She's seventy six years old. My dad died twelve years before, and she was wondering if I was going to be upset because Lawrence was taking her to dinner hundreds of forms of fear. And I said, no, Mom, I will pray for you, and I'll pray for Lawrence doing that too every day. And I wish the best for you. I got up the next morning at 7 to leave, and, and I went and sat on her bed to say goodbye, and she put her head on my shoulder. Please hear this. She put her head on my shoulder, and she started to cry. And she said, son, thank you so much for accepting Lawrence. She said, it's so lonely. And she said, Lawrence just takes me out to Captain Stanley's, and we go to dinner to her favorite place, and she said, but don't worry, son. He has me in by 7 o'clock. <laughs> because we enjoy watching the Dukes of Hazard together. <laughs> Please hear this. She had her head on my shoulder crying, and I put my arm around her. Please hear this. If it had not been for this program, if it had not been for people like you who shared your recovery with me, if it had not been for a sponsor and the big book and the 12 steps and the miracle of what we have here, if it had not been for that, I would have gone to my grave or her grave never, ever having experienced that moment of intimacy and I would have been the loser. That's what would have happened. That's what would have happened. When I left the treatment center, my... Counselor said, uh, I want you to go home and enjoy your family, don't fix them. <laughs> now that's a challenge. Now I've got to tell you about this deal because uh, I'd worked the first step. You know, I'm powerless over my life, my life I'm powerless over Alcohol, I'm powerless over my mom, I did all that power stuff. Come to believe, came to believe that there's a power greater than me. That coming to believe, that process was really for me the praying that I was asked to do my, my counselor and my, my, my sponsor. Pray for this person, pray for your children. I didn't want to do that. I'd never done that. And I thought, well, that, what does that mean? They said, well, you're coming to believe. You're making a decision. You're coming to believe so you can make the decision. Come to believe. So, Claire said, go home. Don't don't fix your family. Enjoy them. Now, let me tell you about my family. I had a 17-year-old son, 6'5", 225-pound tackle on the football team, who had, in my absence, uh, threatened suicide numerous times, had punched walls in, our, in the holes of our... Uh, walls of holes in the walls of our homes he'd just walk down I don't know where he knew how I knew the Maryland where the studs were he'd just go boom out of his anger and just punch a hole right through the wallpaper and the sheet rock and the whole deal and he would uh, he destroyed his room a couple times he knocked the windshield of his girlfriend's car who sitting inside got mad at her because she broke up with him and punched the windshield out from the inside knocked the whole windshield out of the car with his fist very very angry strong dude go home and enjoy them Don't fix me. Our second son Scott was our lost child. He kind of, uh, we don't know where Scott was raised. Um, He was at Johns or Johns or Todd's or somewhere else. He was on his bike. I mean, if we came home, he was emotional. Barometer said there was little emotional things going on in the house. You know, Um, his mom and I were yelling or something. He'd he'd jump on his bike and leave. (laughs) He'd come back and test the water if it was still kind of hot. He'd grab a pair of underwear and he'd leave again. We'd see him the next day. Truly. Scott was just not there. David was there trying to fix us both. <laughs> enjoy your family. Don't fix them. So I got home and I didn't know how to do that. See, the big, big thing that hit me is I did not know how to enjoy my family. You know how we laughed in our home in my 22 years of drinking? And by the way, I took Valium and pain pills I don't want to talk about pills, but it was a part of my story. But there was not a moment of my day that I wasn't affected in some way. Every, every day for 20 years. And so what, what happened in our family is we laughed like this. He, he, he. You know what I mean by it was a he, he, he. We never could belly laugh because we are waiting for the next shoe to fall. Who was going to get mad next? Who was going to blow up next? What was going to happen now? It was the next, catastrophe. The next problem of the hour, the next crisis of the day. Okay, what's going on tonight? To go to dinner was a major decision. Was a major decision that got so so crazy. I don't know if you did this, but we had we called it diagonal arguing. That's the name I gave it. We had little emotional bats. We all carried vests, and they had bats There's imaginary vests. They had little bats in them right here. All kinds of bats, and they'd blame somebody. Say, "Well, how do you like the blue in this cover?" And somebody would say, "Well, you didn't like that blue dress I bought last week." Do you know how much that blue dress cost? Not as much as that three-piece suit you bought for that wedding two years ago. And we'd go all the way back to the day we met. We never talked about the blue cover. That's why I call it dying. Never talked about the question. It just And then I would go sit in the room, and she would go somewhere else. The children would be out in the far corners of the earth. David would be hibernating in his room. And that was our night. And it was finally over. I don't know if you can identify with that. That was our quality of life in 87, 88. And so when I got home, I went and bought a joke book by Milton Berle. Uh, uh, you can have it. It's in my trunk. 10,000 jokes. If you're going to do this, buy a better quality joke than Milton Wright. And I would take this book and put it in the front seat of my car, true story. And on the way home, I'd memorize two or three jokes. And I'd come in and I'd go, How's it going, guys? Let me give you a couple of jokes. Boom, boom, boom. And they would look at me in utter amazement. And I would say, I'll be back. I'm going to practice. And I'd go back into the bedroom. As I changed my clothes, I would say them loudly again. Now, my son was, one was 17, one was 13. And so I'd come back out and go, how is this? Then I'd that's my son. And I'm talking about nothing. Zip. Nothing. And they'd stare at me. Like, this guy's gone to treatment, and boy, is he strange when he got back. I did this day after day. And guess what happened one day? They started to laugh at me because I couldn't tell the dumb
1: jokes.
0: (laughs) It wasn't the jokes. But we started to laugh. And they would bring home jokes they'd heard. Well, I got a joke too. We started to introduce laughter into a home that was void of it. Our home was tension. Our home was anxiety. Our home was fear. Our home was uh, a crisis. Our home was arguing. Our home was all kinds of those things. It wasn't laughter. I had been home about four days, and I was going back to work for the first time, and uh, my 17-year-old decided to watch TV. It was Monday morning about 4.30. He had the TV stereo, you know, TV running through stereo, and had a wide-open type thing. And I went in there, and it was 4.30 on Monday morning. I had to go to work, and I said to him, David, I, I did it my best treatment motif, uh, Wayne. I said, David, I need for you to cut the TV down. I'm feeling a little bit tired and... Uh, And, and I've got to go to work in the morning at 6: you know, six thirty-seven, and I really need some rest. Could you please cut it? I need for you to cut it down. And you know what he did? He said, I'm not going to cut it down, and you can't make me. <laughs> <laughs> Been in treatment now, 90 days, 93 days in the program. <clears throat> I'm cool. I said, no, David, let me explain my needs to you. I'm not getting my point across I'm feeling very frightened right now and and I need for you to cut the TV down and I need for you to, so I can close the door and get back to the rest. And and he jumped up and he came over to me and he started punching me in the chest. I'm looking up at him like this. He's going, I'm not going to cut it down and you can't make me. So I lost my treatment motif at this point. And I started to claim property back. I don't know if you've ever done this. I started punching him in the chest, and I said, it's my TV. It's my sofa. I bought those clothes on your back. This is my house. You know, see, I knew at that moment what had happened. I'd been gone 93 days. This 17-year-old had tried to take control of my house. That's what the problem was. And what I needed to do was just gain it back. We'll shake this place back up. I'm home again. You know, like I did a great job before I left. And he yelled as loud as anything I've ever heard, Dewey. He yelled at me and he looked at me right in the eyes and he said, You alcoholic! You've destroyed my life! Get out of it! He used some other words I won't use from the podium. Because I had never had anyone call me an alcoholic at that point. I'd identified myself as one, but no family member had called me that, nor in that way. And everything within me wanted to just hit him just to show him I was going to take care of it. And I walked away. Don't know why. And I walked down the hall and I started to cry. You know what was happening at that moment? I knew that this program that I had started to come to believe in a power greater than me that would relieve me and others in my life of the insanity I was living in to restore me to sanity. I started to believe that that wasn't going to work. It wasn't going to work. Look at this. Come home and enjoy my family? This is like a, a zoo. And it was. And so uh, I got to the bedroom and I called my sponsor. It's about five. I said, Good morning, Keith. Are you awake? Did one of my sons call me? And I, he said, What? I said, An alcoholic. <laughs> and you know what he said, real quietly? well, aren't you? I said, well, yeah. He said, well, he just called you what you are. I said, but he was yelling at me and poking me in the chest. He said, were you yelling at him and poking him in the chest? I said, yeah, but he provoked me. That's not a good term to use with my sponsor. You know what he told me to do? I'm on the phone now. It's 5 o'clock in the morning, 4.45. He's saying, "David is David's son. Is David?" He said, is, "Is your son still there?" I said, "Yeah, he's down in the den playing it as loud as he was before I went down there." What am I doing? It's like I'm held up in my bedroom. Some of you may have been there too. I can't get out of my house because I got to go buy him. It's the only way out of the house, and I got to go to work. He said, if he's in the den, I want you to go in there and tell him, David, I'm very sorry I yelled at you, and I'll try not to do that again. And then I want you to look at him genuinely, David, and say, Son, may I have permission to hug you?
1: <laughs>
0: Thank you, Keith. I am so sorry I woke you up. I am so sorry. I, please forgive me. I will never do this again. <laughs> Please forgive me, Keith. Ha- have a good day. Thank you so much. <clears throat> you know what I knew? I knew how to handle that situation. You know how I handle situations like that? Very important. I handled it with my disease. I handled it this way. I just wouldn't look at David for two weeks. I'd walk down the hall and he'd say, Good morning, Dad. And I'd look straight ahead, pretend like he wasn't even there. I'd sit at the dinner table with him, and he'd say, pass the potatoes, Dad, and I'd get the potatoes almost to his hand and sit them down and not look at him. I'll show him who's in charge here. See, we got a a little in-charge problem. See, I have the purse string, so I can handle this. It may take me two weeks. I can handle it. And I took a shower. I went to work. Stormed right through the den. I got there about 5.45. I was the first one there. (laughs) I went in my office. I'd been gone from for three months and saw stacks and mounds of paper and and an explosion occurred right in here. Please hear this. I had an explosion of fear and anxiety of not knowing what to do. I was back in reality. I was back at work. I, I knew my son was at home. I knew what had happened. I did not know what to do. I was confused. I was frightened. And I knew this program wasn't going to work. And I thought about it, and I said, I can go to that same liquor locker that I stole vodka from from my chairman of the board of the company for six years and fill it back up with water. I could do that because I know how to get in it and do it. To take this pain away. See, it was the pain. It was the pain. Hundreds of forms of fear. Hundreds of forms of self-delusion. Hundreds of forms of self-seeking. Hundreds of forms of, 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 of victimhood. Hundreds of forms or I can go home and do what my sponsor asked or suggested. So I got in my car and drove home. Sun was just coming up and my son was walking across the lake in the backyard across the lake, just absolutely angry. He was just angry. And I walked over to him in the middle of the backyard and I said, David, I'm very sorry I yelled at you and I'll try not to do that again. And he looked at me. He said, what did you say? I said, I'm very sorry. I'll, I yelled at you. I'll try not to do that again. And this is important. He looked at me as if I was a stranger. And in fact, I was. I had never said that. I had to be right. <laughs> you know, part of being right is being right. Part of being a parent is being right. We're <laughs> wrong. We're in trouble. And then I said, May I have permission to hug you? He went, What? (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) I walked over. It was like hugging this podium. (laughs) He was was sitting here going. (laughs) He was so rigid. He was like. And so I put my arms around him. You know, I kind of didn't touch him. I didn't touch him. (laughs) I closed my eyes. And you know what I was thinking? My sponsor is full of bulls. You know why I was thinking that? Because I had said the two lines he gave me. I don't know if your sponsor gives you lines to say. But he told me those two lines. I said them and I knew I was going to have to let go and put my tail between my legs and go back into the car and go to the office and I'd lost control of my house forever. That's the outcome of this mess. He'd gotten me into. Thank you very much. And just the second, just the second that I started to let David go, guess what he did? He grabbed me, and he hugged me, and he wept on my shoulder. He said, Dad, please forgive me. Please forgive me for what I caused you. Please know that I support you. Please know that I am with you. I want to do everything I can to help you in AA. I want you to have a new way of life. I love you. And I was able to hug him and tell him how sorry I was that he lived in my home for 17 and a half years not having known me one second of one minute of one hour of one day of one week of one month of one year without alcohol or drugs in my body and I was very sorry that when I was 13 laying on the ground trying to plan my life I did not plan that. That was not in my plan. Please forgive me. And we stood and we cried. Two very, very, very important things happened. First, we started over. David and I were very fortunate because we started over that morning, and we have since the, since that time. My youngest son, Scott, it took us eight years. <laughs> eight years. And one day, and even in another country, he came to me and said, Can we start over? Uh, I'd like to have what you and David have. And we uh, did. And we are. Uh, David and Scott and I are in business together now. In fact, uh, just went this week and helped God guy get his home, and we did some things this week that were just an answer to, to truly prayers, to dreams that only this program has been able to give me. Uh, and we love each other. I told, I told David the important part of that morning, though, is I told David, I said, I don't want to take credit for this because my sponsor, Keith, suggested I do this. It was not my action. He said, let's go call your sponsor. So we went back in the house and called Keith. It was about 6.15 Hey Keith, did we wake you up? <laughs> uh David is on the other line. He wants to to say something to you, and he told Keith how much he appreciated him. How much he appreciated him and what he was doing for his dad. And uh I thank Keith as well. And I said, I'm going to go to work now, I think. <laughs> it's been a long night. <laughs> and he said to me, uh, don't leave yet, David. I need to talk to you. And he, David Jr. had to go to school, and he did. And he said to me this. He said, David, uh, I want you from this moment on to not be a parent to your children anymore. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, David, your parenting is about to kill them. Uh, I didn't like that. I thought I'd done a pretty fantastic job. He said, "I want you to start sponsoring them." I said, "But how do I do that?" He said, "Don't parent them. I want you to sponsor them." I said, "But how?" He said, "Don't you tell them one thing to do. Don't you give them one piece of advice anymore?" If they need you, they will come and ask you a question, and you only give your experience, not your opinion. If you have no experience as an adult in that area of your life, then you refer them to someone else in the program or to someone else out of the program, but you get them the experience they need to give them the help they need. You see, I was doing things in my drinking when my son was 16. This is exact. This is what dignity. This destroys you. It sounds silly, but destroys your dignity. My son came to me one Saturday morning. I was drinking, thinking about killing myself. It was another fine Saturday for me. And, uh, <laughs> and he said his best friend Hughes had had a transmission, automatic transmission, and broken his car the night before, and they towed it down to, to Ed's on Rayford Road, and, and uh, they were going to work on the transmission. He said, Dad, do you know anything about automatic transmissions? And, of course, you know what I said. Of course I do, son. What do you? What's the? What's the symptom? He said, "Well, stop pulling." I said, oh, "It sounds like the first, the front pump." And I told him about all this stuff, and then the, probably that differential. I said, "I was giving all this stuff." I said, "You might want to mention that to the mechanic." So my son, with this latent piece of golden news I had given him, goes and gets Hughes, his friend, his best friend, and drives to to Ed's about five blocks away, and starts to just impart this knowledge on an automatic transmission mechanic. And the mechanic with my son and his best friend said, I don't know who in the heck has given you this information, but they have never seen an automatic transmission. (laughs) Who was the lunatic that told you that? (laughs) My son was too ashamed to say his dad, but his best friend did. So Keith told me that I need to stop doing that. That I didn't have any experience. I didn't share anything. And you know what I said? But Keith, they'll never ask me anything. They don't want to know what I've got to say. You know what he said? Isn't that wonderful? That part of your life's over. <laughs> the hardest thing in recovery for me has been to honor that. You see, my dis-ease, my disease, hundreds of forms of fear, self-seeking, self-pity, self-delusion, those hundreds of forms manifested itself in my family. And slowly and slowly, year by year, I destroyed with my disease the dignity and the caring and the charity and the love. That's what I did. Now, it's important that I know that, because it's also therefore important that I give that back. To watch two children, scared to death of their dad, sit and listen, and we started talking about feelings. The first thing we did, we started talking feelings. I said, I'm sorry, it frightens me. My son, Scott, I'll never forget, he said, Dad, you can't be frightened. You've never been frightened. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I've set them up to be perfect to never be frightened never be angry never be anything just be perfect be okay are you fine? okay fine that's what we were we were a bunch of fine people until we got by ourselves and it wasn't so fine before it put us in public we sparkled and I had to give them their dignity and I'd have to say something like Scott I don't know what do you think your options are? What do you mean, options, Dad? I said, well, what are your solutions? What do you think your solutions are? You tell me what you think yours are. And I started to turn it back and have them start thinking and working in their life. And it's been a wonderful process. It's been a wonderful process. And it's absolutely, to me, it's phenomenal because it's freed me to be what? Their dad. (laughs) Just their dad. And that's enough. That's enough. I uh, want to share this with you. It's a, to me, it's a, an important step, six and seven. I uh, when I got to step five, I did my inventory of my my sponsor. He said uh, I, he asked me a question. He said, "Is that all? Do you need to share any more?" That was a great question. It was a great answer to say, "No, I'm I'm through at this point. <laughs> I think I'm through." And then I looked ahead in the big book before I went to see him, and I saw that after that, I was supposed to spend an hour by myself reconsidering the mortar joints in the archway, looking at how it was arranged, make sure the first. Five uh, steps had, was an archway that I could move forward. Then I saw step six and one paragraph, step seven, a self-step prayer, and I saw eight on the bottom of the next page. And so I said to him, do you think we can go ahead and work step eight tomorrow afternoon or the next day? And he said, uh, what's the hurry? I said, because I, you know, I want to make sure we get through these steps. I mean, I, I'm really ready to go. He said, but you haven't worked the most, two of the most important parts of the steps. I said, what are that?" He said, six and seven. I said, keep their own paragraph. Just a few words. I mean, it's not like a lot. And one's a prayer. I said, we could say that prayer right now. (laughs) And he said, no, we're not going to work it that way. He said, what I want you to do is I want you to go home and and inventory yourself with the seven deadly sins. And and chapter four of the big, uh, of the 12 and 12, uh, step four. And he said, I want you to look at pride, greed, lust, envy, jealousy, sloth, and anger. I may have left out one. And uh, he said, I want you to uh, tell me what it means, look it up in the dictionary, and below that, uh, show me how you use it in your life. And thirdly, most importantly, tell me what price you pay each time you do. He said, then I want you to read, uh, read Step 6 in the 12 and 12 one day, Step 7 in the 12 and 12 the next day, Step 6, Step 7, Step 6, Step 7. He said, just read that for a while. I'd read uh, Step 3 for 30 days. Our rule was, in our sponsorship line, is you have to read Step 3 in the 12 and 12 every day for 30 days. If you don't do it one day, you start over for 30 days. And if you fall asleep the 29th day and don't, don't get it, you start over for 30 days. And I said, but why do I have to do it like this? This is like discipline. He said, Right. The question is, are you willing to go to any length? (laughs) But you're trying to tell me how to run my life. He said, no, I'm just trying to give you a new way to look at life. And so I I said, six and seven, I said, okay, so I started my inventory, read six, seven. Two weeks later, I said, Keith, I'm reading six and seven, just want to let you know. He said, great. He said, are you angry yet? I said, oh, no, Keith, I'm fine, I'm fine. (laughs) I've worked the third step, uh... Uh, uh, Michael, and, and, you know, I'm trying to live my life over, I'm fine. He said, well, keep reading then, To get angry. End of a month, I thought, well, this is a month now I can stop, 30 days, third step, 30 days, six and seven. I said, okay, Keith, I've read a month now. He said, well, how angry are you? I said, well, I'm, I'm pretty angry. He said, at whom? I said, a lot of people. <laughs> he, said. <laughs> he said, you didn't name the right people, you keep reading. after the second month. Six, one day. They're longer than step three and the twelve and twelve, I wanna tell you they're longer. It takes longer every night. I was pretty hacked off. I was hacked off at God and I was hacked off at me. And I called him back. And it'd been two and a half months and he said you're angry at the right people, let's talk. And so I went over with my inventory that I've been working on and <clears throat> what I said I understood and, and what he helped me to see is that I am not able on my own to accept the acceptance I'm given freely every day. And on my own, in my disease and in my life, what I have tried and thought I had to do was to earn it, prove it, be okay, be fine, do something, but I was not enough just in and of myself. I was not enough. And what he helped me to see that my working the sixth step is to really look at the defects, what they do, and what they cause in me. And every one of them, every one of them, pride, greed, lust, envy, jealousy, loss. you know what lust caused? It caused me not to be able to have female friends. It robbed me of that wonderful friendship. It robbed it made me feel separate from. It made me feel separate from them and from myself and from God. And that was the price I paid on every one of them. Got me too. And he said, You can keep paying that. He said, and those are the tools, the defects, David, you have are the tools you have developed and fine-tuned beautifully to survive in the life you lived in. But they will absolutely haunt you in the life you're trying to move into. You don't need them. You need faith. You need prayer. You need to go to meetings. You need to write, read the big book. You need to have a sponsor. You need to talk to other people, work with other people. That's what you need now. And so we said the prayer together, and he said this to me. If you will accept your acceptance, and I want to share this with you. On the days that I can accept the acceptance that I have been given freely, I don't need them. I don't need the defect. On the days that I feel like I'm not enough, guess what I need to survive? All my tools. And they come right back. (laughs) Step 10, and I'll finish with this. My sister called me when I was about two years sober and asked me to sing in her wedding. Uh, I wasn't a singer, so I thought it was an unusual request. <laughs> she asked me to be in her wedding. I thought it was an usher. So I said, sure, I'll be an usher or something. She said, I want you to sing. I said, how? Sing? And she said, well, you sing in the choir. I said, but I'm not a singer. She said, "We'll sing a duet. So we sang a duet. She sent me this song by Lee Greenwood and Barbara Streisand. It was To Me or To Be or something like that. She sent me the street music, and a little cassette that I played in my car in and, and August, September, up to October 15th. I was, I was singing Lee Greenwood every day at the stop signs, you know, to me. And I was really practicing. I had gotten the pianist over to church to help me out, and they were playing for me. And, oh, man, I was good. And we got to the church for the, for the rehearsal party, or the rehearsal Friday night. And my sister and her, my brother-in-law B, were standing in the back of the church. All my family was there. And I got up with the pianist they had, Elaine. And, and I opened my mouth, and this brick came out i never heard this note. I don't think anybody else had. And my, my sister, I'll never forget it, she buried her head in her husband-to-be's chest and she went like this. And all I could think was, like you were saying last time, I was thinking, what was she saying? I wish I could fire him, but I can't because he's my brother. you know. And I gotta, you know what I was thinking? I've got to sing this again tomorrow. With more people. You see what had happened in that process of two and a half months? As I practice with Lee Greenwood, Dave's wedding songs incorporated. Dave's chapel services. Lee and I could probably do this one day together. I am serious. You see, my sister. Did not think I was Lee Greenwood. I did. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so I went home. I couldn't sleep. I had a little upset stomach. I was feeling toss and tumble. You know, I get up in the morning at 6 o'clock. I got my big book, and I'm going to, to meditate, and, and my big, big book, and I'm praying, meditating, and I'm thinking, and I did just like this. I really did. I went, <clears throat> Yale, this is David. Yeah, I woke up this morning with a real sore throat. I don't think I can sing in your wedding today. Oh, I can't do that to my sister. So I'm meditating getting real spiritual. Yeah. You know? And here's what I did I laid down my books. I went to my bathroom gym to get sick. I used to do that when I'd call in after a drunk. I'd practice before I got on the phone. <clears throat> yeah, I said, David, I'm feeling real bad this morning. I don't think I got a little flu. I think a little virus. I don't know. And they'd say, oh, don't come in. You'll give it to every one of us. And they'd go, yes. Yeah. <laughs> For about 15 minutes and I felt guilt because I knew I was lying about it. I went in the bathroom and I was getting sick and I took my glasses off and I always looked in the bathroom to get sick. I had to look sick so I could sound sick and I was getting like this and I And uh, I glanced up at my mirror. And I was practicing. Yeah, this is David. And on my mirror, when I was three months sober, my sponsor had me write something, which was there for 11 years until I moved out of that house this past year, a year ago. And on that mirror, it said, David, you're wrong. See, my sponsor told me I had a problem with being wrong. I could, I could be right all day, but being wrong was hard for me, and I had to understand it was an ego trip. And it was okay to be wrong. And he said the most spiritual gifts, the biggest spiritual gifts, the biggest blessings of this program is when you're wrong, not when you're right. You're learn from them. And so I was able to glance up that morning and see, David, you're wrong. And for the first time, I understood why it was there. You see, I took a tenth step inventory, and I said... If I am right right now, if I am right... because see, my my sister was living in another city. My mother, my family was asleep. There was no human being in the world at 6 o'clock that morning making me afraid but me. Me. And you know why? Because I wanted to be Lee Greenwood. Thought of what? Set myself up. You're wrong. And by being wrong, Jim... I did not have to live that way anymore. You see, my sister wanted me to be of service to her. That's all. That's the tenth step. Am I selfish, dishonest, afraid, resentful today? And if those things are present, I can't be of service. I'm not able to be. I can't be available. And so I went back and I sat down and I went to that wedding. And you know who I sang to? My sister. I was there for her. I didn't care if anybody was there. I was singing to my sister because she loved me and wanted me to be there. Without you and out this program, I can't get there without you. This year has been unusual. I have separated after a 30-year marriage. As I said to you, that uh, each family member recovers in their own time. And David and I started over fairly early. My son Scott and I, eight years of starting over till we finally did, trying. And my wife and I never could, unfortunately. And... Uh, This year has been a wonderful year of freedom, a wonderful year of looking at other horizons and new places, a wonderful year of finding out that I can really love and and be loved, uh, a wonderful year of feeling okay. In fact, I, I called my sponsor last April and I said, Keith, I feel as free as I've ever felt. And he said something very important. He said, isn't it amazing, David, what happens when you remove yourself from bondage? I said, how long have you known? He said, since the second week I started to sponsor you. I said, why didn't you tell me? He said, because you had to come to that conclusion. And if I had told you, I would have been meddling. You see, this program allows me not to ever have to stop growing. The 12 steps for me, in fact, I think it's this way. It's, it's not like just work. I thought the 12 steps were working one time. It's like, I'm going to get there. When am have the spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. And whoo, I'm going to get it. And happened that way for me. In fact, what happened is I had to, with, like with alcohol, I had to work the first step. I'm powerless of alcohol. I had to work, come to believe that Power of Greater Me is going to restore me to sanity regarding alcohol. In my life, uh, third step, made a decision to turn my will and my life over regarding alcohol to a Power of than Me. Fourth step, fifth step, what is my inventory about alcohol? Sixth and seventh, what is my part in it? Eighth and ninth, who do I owe a mince to as a result of my alcoholic uh, behavior? uh tenth, who I need to pray for continually. And look at my side in 11th and 12th in prayer and meditation and having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps regarding alcohol in my life. But then I had to turn back and go, but about my mother. I'm powerless over my mother. I had to come to believe that the power greater great enough would restore us to sanity. On and on. But my son, there had to be an over, never-ending process. This year it had to be about the marriage. I'm powerless. I have to move on. And I prayed and sought advice, and I'm going to do that. I, have. I think the important thing is this. It's like South American Indians capture monkeys in a very unusual way. They build this large clay pot. It's solid clay. And they put a cavity in it and a long noose neck. And they put sweet beans down in this pot. And they put it out in the opening of the jungle. And the, the monkeys get real curious. And they go over and they smell these sweet beans. And they put their hand in the pot. And they grab a couple of them. And they can't get their fist out. All they got to do to be free is let go. Just let them go. They can pull the hand out. They'll stay there all day jerking on that pot, captured till the Indians come and club them over the head knock them unconscious. Put them in a cage and then they'll let go when they're unconscious. They pull the hand out, use the same jug, the same beans for the next monkey the next day. I am like that monkey. <laughs> Everything that's been done or not done, said or not said, I have held on for whatever reason. Hundreds of forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, self-pity. These 12 steps, you and sharing in this program and a sponsor in the big book, have allowed me one at a time to let go of each being. And I find I'm willing to let go when it's painful enough to let go. So a fellow in uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, my sponsor, suggested I pray. when I, uh, After I got sober, my dad had already died. He said, pray for someone to come into your life that... You could give the respect and love that you did, you could have to your dad if you were sober at the time. And so this guy's name is Bob, and Bob's in AA, and he chairs the Cottonmouth Group in, uh, Wilmington, North Carolina. I speak for Bob every six months. I go down to the Wilmington Treatment Center, Center Treatment, Treatment Center meeting. And, uh, Bob calls, and he says this. He says, Son, how you doing? Bob's about 75. And he said, I'm fine, Bob. How are you, Maybelline? Da 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 da. And finally he'll say, son, i got to go, but I want to tell you one thing for I do. I said, what's that? He said, I love you, and there's not a thing you can do about it.
1: <laughs>
0: so I want to tell you with, with a tremendously grateful heart, a tremendously grateful spirit to be able to be back here, and a tremendously uh, uh, appreciative of, of uh, your being here today and allowing me to share uh, that I love you, all of you, and there's not a thing you can do about it. Thank you.